Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus Van Staden of the University of Johannesburg Center for African Foreign Policy and Diplomacy. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. Well, we haven't had a lot in the way of major news this past week、uh, in the China-Africa front. That happens from time to time.、Uh, but so what we're going to do is turn our attention to a, a couple of different essays this week. And in today's show, we're going to talk about an article that was put out that features、uh, really some key points by Ugandan economist Lawrence Otieno. And from time to time on the show, what we'd like to do is step back. And look at some of the key ideas and concepts that define the China-Africa relationship. And、uh, and this particular economist, what he talks about, and I think it's very interesting, is the idea that China-Africa trade is defined in many ways by the limitations within Africa itself. And that is the fact that there is very, very you know high walls that divide countries between、uh, one another from cross-border trade to customs tariffs to you know regulation things that we're seeing in. Other parts of the world come down, such as NAFTA in the United States and the European Union in Europe,、uh, really are still in effect in Africa, making it so that it's cheaper and more effective, oftentimes, for African governments, African businesses, to buy from overseas than to trade within themselves. So, Kobus, let's take a look at this essay by. Well, actually, it wasn't by him, but it featured、uh, Lawrence Otieno. And、uh, before we get started. A little bit of background on Otieno. He was up until recently a professor at、uh, Makerere University, and、uh, he was an economist there. And now he's at、uh, a think tank, what we think is a think tank,、uh, something called the Ministry of East African Community Affairs. Okay, with that out of the way, Kobus, when you when you hear the key points about how you know Otieno and others, he's he's not alone, by the way. You know, suggesting that Africa, in some ways, is its own worst enemy when it comes to trade, and that it sets the the the, the table, if you will, for foreign powers to take advantage of itself. What's your first reaction when you hear this? Yeah, I, I tend to、uh, really agree with him.、Um, you know, kind of we in in reading for for this topic,、uh, I was looking at two different pieces. One was an interview with him that was published in China Daily、um, this last week, where he made the point that Africa needs to be planning much more strategically for when their resources run out. You know, kind of that they can't assume that that oil and other natural resources are going to be last are going to last forever, and that they need to be planning twenty, thirty, forty years down the line to. See See what they're going to be exporting. The other、um, piece that was very interesting was was a piece that he wrote about why Uganda has such problems trading within the East African region,、um, and that was published as part of a bigger、um, a bigger report、uh, that was put out by the Brookings Institution last year, and that really just laid out all of these problems. And it was actually quite depressing reading. You know, kind of if if you're thinking, oh, I wonder why why aren't African countries you know kind of trading more with each other, then and you read this. Report you're like oh there are reasons you know lots and lots of reasons <laughs> yeah well I think one one of the things that again and this is the word Africa is is a big disservice to the continent because it uses a single word to define a highly complex economic political and social grouping that really defies you know an easy characterization so with that said the idea that you know going back to colonialism the the French the British the Dutch everybody created separate economic systems in each of their former colonies. And from those traditions, it's been very, very difficult for them to now to work together. Despite the fact that since the 1960s, we've seen this kind of dream of pan-Africanism that any time it hits the reality is confronted with obstacle after obstacle after obstacle. Now Otieno, and this, this he says one very interesting point. He says. 
And this is a quote. Some Chinese exporters are taking advantage of the institutional weaknesses in Africa and the fact that we don't have adequate standards or the ability to implement them. And Kobus, I want to get your, your take on his choice of words of inability. So is there an unwillingness or an inability to implement the, these kind of cross-border reforms that would facilitate and enhance trading? I think both. Um, inability in the sense that um, you know, for, you know. For example, he makes he makes the, the the good point that one of the big reasons why inter intra region trade is so difficult is because is because of a lack of infrastructure. So you know, kind of you you need to to get to ship you know kind of cargo to from from Uganda to Kenya, but there isn't a railway to do it, or there isn't, or the railway is broken down, or it only runs once a week, or you know that that kind of that kind of problem. So everything takes very long, and that means it's very expensive. So the, I think that that is a kind of inability. I think there's also an unwillingness in the sense that he, with the one of the points that he makes is the, that African bureaucracies are very entrenched um, and they tend to, to protect themselves and um, and they tend to slow down these issues, um, slow down the, these kind of passages, cross-border um, passages. Um, and with that, there's also corruption. You know, kind of so so a, a bureaucracy that's both self-protecting and corrupt tends to tends to slow everything down even more. Well, with that in mind, I mean, you and I often talk about this concept of Africa as victim. And in some ways, even Otieno alludes to that, though he doesn't directly kind of come out and say it. But he says some Chinese exporters are taking advantage of the institutional weakness. And this idea that, you know, Africa is something to be manipulated, to be taken advantage of. And we've talked about this a lot in the context of the African psyche that is really across the continent that says somebody else is doing something to us. And what you're describing, though, is really something that is internal and domestic and really, again, these are constituencies that don't necessarily want to encourage change because, well, they're profiting from them for whatever reason. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, and I think, you know, there's also because because of these, these institutional problems, um, there are strong perceptions that that, you know, kind of Africa is a weak system, you know, kind of which it is because of the institutional problems. So, um, so frequently, you know, kind of any governments sometimes tend to resist regional integration because they're afraid they're going to be dragged down even more by their unstable neighbors because, you know, because there's already this perception that the whole region is unstable. So I think it's, it's a little chicken and egg. Um, but it, what it ends up doing is that African countries are just really, really isolated from each other when they should be more integrated. Um, and with, and that means that they can't they can't bargain collectively, and that just in a way forces China to set up all of these bilateral agreements with individual governments because that's just the most practical way of doing things, even though it's a way that frequently isn't the best for Africa. And it really allows China and other powers to play one government, one country off another. So to say, if we're not going to get the best deal here, guess what? We're going to go next door. Exactly. And I mean, you know, kind of the other issue that, that he points out is that a lot of African countries have, have practiced um, import substitution in the past, um, which means that they all tend to, they all produce the same things. They don't produce things that are complementary to each other. They all produce exactly the same things, which means they're all in direct competition with, this, uh, with each other. So an external f- actor like China, you know, kind of when they're like, okay, you know, kind of we want to buy raw iron ore, we want to buy it from you, but if you're giving us kind of problems, then we go to your 
called neighboring country which is which produces the identical raw iron ore um, you know kind of there's no there's no th- uh, situation where you have to deal with us because we're the only person who produces these things well let me bring your attention uh, to an article that was published today we're recording this on Monday September 9th over in business live this is one of South Africa's leading business publications at bdlive.co.za and it's a, a column by uh, Diana Games and Diana Games is the CEO of Africa at Work and she pointed out she really references in her piece uh, a, a, an anecdote from Manu Chandaria who is a Kenyan business magnate and he apparently kind of recounted the fact that if if Africa had no trade barriers he believes that the private sector could at least double what it is now I mean that's kind of impressive that he could double and this is from her article she said he said that in 55 years he had opened up 17 operations across Africa in a fraction of that time he had opened more than half that number in operations in China it is one country pointed out that quote, I can move faster because I do not have to deal with 54 different countries with different borders and regulations. So I think it's interesting there you're hearing it directly from uh, from somebody who wants to, to bring more business to Africa but simply can't because of different regulations, different languages, different custom tariffs, all of this. I guess my question for you, Kobus, as somebody who's actually thought about this a, a lot more than I have, do you think anything will change? I mean, do you actually see any any movement to bring uh, you know these you know closer unity even on a regional basis by on the continent east africa southern africa northern africa western africa yeah i think i think there are moves to do that um, i think that they could move much quicker um, and they could be more hard nosed about it but there there has been um, attempts uh, moves in in for example in in uh, the the southern african um, development community to um, to streamline tariffs um, you know, kind of, and to, and to make it easier to, you know, kind of, so, so that you don't have a doubling of tariffs every time you cross one of these many borders. Um, and there's also, you know, with with Chinese uh, investment, there's, for example, the the move to to build new railway lines that would, you know, connect Rwanda, Kenya, and Uganda, um, you know, kind of on a single kind of railway system. Um, so I think that's definitely happening. It should be happening much more. Um, and I think African governments should be much more proactive. About about it, um, I think part of what part of the problem there is that it, um, you know, is, is again this issue of of you know kind of getting uh, getting these these kind of recalcitrant. Um, Bureaucracies, kind of getting them to move, and you know, and, and and changing bureaucratic culture in Africa. I think that that's that's a massive a massive challenge, and I'm not really sure how to do it. Well, let's think about this from the point of view of the Chinese. You know, so on the one hand, uh, China has a real preference for dealing with multilateral institutions. It's one of the reasons they actually built the African Union headquarters in Addis Ababa. Uh, for for the most part, they will always defer to the United Nations over unilateral actions. We're seeing that now with the opposition to the United States demand to, 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 to strike Syria. They don't like unilateral uh, you know, events of any kind. So this idea on the one hand that they've been profiting over you know, the fact that there isn't any regulation uh, or cross-border regulation in Africa, do you think at some level though they might actually welcome some consistency in tariff union? They might actually welcome some consistency uh, you know, in cross-border trade and maybe even a currency union if there is one or such a thing like that? Or, or do you think they profit more from the fact that there's individual governments? 
Um, from my perspective, it seems that they would probably really profit from it if, if that system is integrated and efficient. Because, I mean, you know, Chinese business is nothing but pragmatic. Um, and, you know, it, it would just, I think, cut their costs so much. You know, it, it would make, they would, they would have to deal with so many, so, you know, kind of much, much fewer um, different kinds of bureaucracy. They would have to to kind of train people in, in, a, in a less complicated way. Um, so I think that would definitely work for them. I mean, at the, at the same time, I think a lot of these contracts have now been set up with, with you know, kind of the elites and the governments that are, that, that are the reality at the moment. So that it, it would probably then force them to, um, you know, kind of to, to find different people to work with, you know, kind of which, which they might resist in the short term. But I can imagine in the long term it would just be much easier. I think it would be, and it's one of these points that we brought up certainly when talking about the Sanusi Lumida, uh, you know, comments out of Nigeria and the fact that, you know, the, the Chinese ha- are, are being forced to, to evolve their foreign policy beyond a pan-African policy, which is what they've had for a very long time, to country-by-country policies, which is obviously more difficult to manage. So if there is regionalization, that can certainly facilitate that and make it easier for them to, to manage their own foreign policy, both on a political level, but as you said, also on a commercial level. Um, but when you see these calls from, you know, and every once in a while, you know, we hear academics, and I find that sometimes academics are, you know, high up in the ivy tower, you know, disconnected from reality. It's great that someone like Lawrence Otiano, who's paid by a think tank, works in university, comes out with all these highfalutin ideas, but if it's not backed up by both the business community, politicians, and really the public at large, is there any chance for this to succeed? And I guess my concern is we've seen the really the shortcomings of integration in Europe, where we've seen a rise of nationalism, we've seen a loss of sovereignty, and you've really seen this this union being pulled apart. And it raises the question as to whether or not we have, you know, this, only academics are talking about this, but on the ground, it's not feasible. And so I wonder, is there anybody else besides, you know, academics and think tankers who are saying this? You know what? What I gleaned from some of the other reports in this in this Brookings Institution, um, you know, kind of project, was that it's a it's a weird mix between very high and very low. Um, in in the sense that you know, kind of academics, as you said, academics sit in the ivory tower and they they, they spin out these ideas, and to a certain extent. That is what that's their job. That's kind of what, what that's their value, you know, kind of, and then, you know, kind of implementing those ideas become other people's job. But what is also interesting is that in Africa, there are many, many small time traders who are crossing borders back and forth all the time. Um, and someone, I can't remember who, a writer recently made, made the point, um, that small time African traders know much more about the, about different African currencies and switching back and forth between currencies and dealing with border issues. And, and getting you know kind of product across borders and so on than m- most middle middle class Africans do um, because they do it every day. So I think there's a weird mix there where high level people are saying, oh, we should be doing this in a formal kind of way and, and build institutions that do it. And then there are these these people who are frequently illiterate or you know kind of who make this really kind of very small time you know day to day living selling small things mm-hmm. who are already implementing it. Um, and that, I think. 
think bringing those two together is the issue. Well, Lawrence Otieno, his main point that you kind of touched on very early on in our discussion was the fact that Africa must get its SH show. Oh, I can't swear on this podcast. Must get must get its stuff <laughs> together uh, in the next at least generation or, or, or latest two generations. In part because um, the natural resources are going to go away. We we know that there is no mystery to that. The question is, of course, when. Um, you know, obviously now with the discovery of massive amounts of oil in the United States, uh, maybe the life the lifespan of the oil supply will extend another twenty years, thirty years, who never who knows how long. But there is a finite amount of those resources. And Otieno then kind of he comes out and he says, if we don't come up with a different way to trade with each other, then there is no future for the continent. And I think that is to me the most important point that he he, he comes down is really an ultimatum. And he says countries like China will continue to profit from this disunity that we have. But Cobus, I mean, I'm gonna and the last point we're gonna make on this because we're we're beating a dead horse here is, you know, you look at the Great Lakes region and you look at the, you know, the fact that, well, we do have cross-border trade. It just happens to be in arms and rebels and militants and all into the Congo. Um, you know, these are, these are countries with long histories of fighting with one another, long histories of animosities with one another. They were played off each other quite aggressively by colonial powers, and there really isn't any precedent for this to happen. So I guess I want to close our discussion today on, on a somewhat negative note to say, um, is, you know, it just doesn't seem feasible right now. Or maybe some parts of it, the continent, it does more than others. But it's, it's hard to imagine that North Africa with all of its problems in Egypt, Tunisia, Algeria, uh, Southern Africa with its discrepancies in economies between South Africa and everybody else, I, I, I'm struggling to see how South Africa will open its borders to trade from, from poorer countries because I can see the unions being very upset about that. It, it just seems there's too many political hurdles to, to mount. Yeah, you know, kind of Otieno himself, you know, kind of strikes quite a kind of a, a downbeat tone in some of his writing where he's saying that, you know, don't be fooled by African growth rates now. Africa has had kind of resource-driven growth rates before that have collapsed. You know, it's it's you need to, to take a much longer view and to really look at which institutions are being built and that they aren't really being built at the moment, um, which I tend to agree with. Um, my, I, I was, I'm wondering whether... It might be a situation where Africa is going to develop um, unequally, you know, kind of that that the, you, you'll see zones of development. Um, the one that I'm thinking of is, is a kind of a coastal zone that's, that's like kind of southeast Africa maybe, like South Africa, Mozambique, that zone. And then also, you know, kind of the uh, an integrated – if if – East Africa can get stuff together, you know, kind of an integrated East Africa zone, perhaps. Um, and that you'll see these kind of islands of growth that might in the long run start to influence, you know, kind of the middle. Um, that, that might, that might be a possibility. We'll, we'll have to look at how, at how it goes. Ironically, that's exactly how China has been growing is that the East Coast, of course, has developed far more rapidly than we've seen in the interior and the West. So unequal levels of growth is something that China is very familiar with. But I would assume that that's exactly the way it's going to go. Uh, I really invite everybody to check out Lawrence Otieno. Let me spell you his last name so you can look it up. It's uh, Lawrence, spelled the normal way, and then Otieno, O-T-H-I-E-N-O. And this is a guy, again, out of Uganda, an economist who's putting forward a lot of interesting ideas, both about China's role in African trade, but also the importance that what Africa must do within itself and the reforms it must undertake in order to be able to compete and to advance. Uh, And it's really, you know, Cobus, for the past few weeks, we've heard one voice after another 
talking about the need for domestic reforms in Africa and that this is the time because, it, it, you know, time is in fact running out. Time is not on Africa's side. It's facing a population bulge. Uh, its resources will be extinct at some point. It's facing pressures on its wildlife. So if the reforms are not taken now, one has to wonder when they will ever be taken. So uh, Lawrence Otieno, the article that we were referencing was uh, from China Daily, actually. Um, and really, again, interesting the fact that China Daily is running some of this critical coverage of China. So go to ChinaDaily.com, search for Otieno, and you will find it. And of course, the other article that I referenced today was by Diana Games in bdlive.co.za. So that'll do it for this edition of the China in Africa podcast. Uh, every week before we go, we like to throw a little plug to our Facebook page where Cobus and I, uh, we moderate it every day. It's become really lively of late. So if you haven't checked it out, I invite you to go to facebook.com slash China Africa Project. And Cobus, if people want to find you elsewhere other than Facebook, where you and I are commenting quite a bit, where can they find you? I am actually much more active again on Twitter. I've, I've managed to like drag myself back on Twitter. <laughs> so I'm at Stadnesk. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. And you'll actually see movement there now nice. after months of quiet. Well, welcome back to the Twitterverse. And uh, you can find me over on Twitter as well at E-O-Lander. That's E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China and Africa headlines almost every day. Uh, and, of course, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way for you to do it is over on iTunes. Uh, just give us a search for China Africa Project. You'll find us there. Uh, you can also subscribe to us on SoundCloud. We're on Stitcher. We're on the BlackBerry Network in South Africa. We're now on the Kindle, actually. There's Kindle apps, when, and so we're there. We have mobile apps for Android and iPhone, so we're basically everywhere you need us to be. Uh, no excuse not to listen to us, but we'd love to hear from you. Drop us a note. Drop us a tweet. Drop us an email. Uh, and we'll be back later this week with another edition of the show. Until then, thank you so much for listening. 